0: Welcome to Podcastica Patristica, I'm your host, Tyler Stanley, and you're never going to believe it, but we're finally finishing our guide to St. Augustine's City of God. In this final part of our guide, we're looking at books 21 and 22, and in these sections, Augustine is continuing his discussion of the end, the... The final goal of all things, of the city of man and the city of God. Where will these things end? What is their ultimate uh, purpose and fulfillment? Where are they headed? So in the first part, we'll look at book 21, where he deals with the punishment of the wicked. And in the second part, we will end the book with the happiness, the felicity of the blessed. let's get to punishment. Augustine is well known for having uh, probably built the most comprehensive view of uh, the Western understanding of punishment and God's wrath. So you're probably pretty familiar with what Augustine thinks, even if you didn't know that it was Augustine who kind of championed this view. First of all, Augustine gets into, he's got to argue against the sort of platonic idea floating around in his day that that we will ultimately be separated from our bodies, whether for punishment or for uh, paradise. People believe that the bodies, we will we'll lose the bodies forever, and that's the end of that. But Augustine says no for, for both punishment and for paradise we will retain our bodies. But specifically with regard to punishment, Augustine says this punishment is eternal. It's conscious torment for all eternity for those who God has condemned. And they will have their bodies with them. And um, Augustine says that, that a, a, a body must have a soul with it in order for the body to endure, to endure pain and he uses, you know, everyday life for you to realize this. I mean, think about if you beat a dead body, that body's not going to flinch. It's not going to feel anything. It must have its life. It must have its soul within it in order for that body to feel pain. So the souls will be re-combined with the body for it to be sent to its punishment. Now, the common argument that Augustine faced was that bodies can't endure that forever. If it's burning for all eternity, it's eventually going to get burned up. Bodies can't endure that sort of thing. And for one thing, Augustine says, bodies can endure quite a bit. You can torture people and, you know, leave them just on the brink of death, but never get them fully dead. But also God is omnipotent. God is all God can do whatever God wants. Who are you to say that God can't make a body last forever while it's burned? So Augustine gives examples of everyday occurrences that baffle the mind, of these these natural phenomena that we can't explain. Augustine sees miracles every day. Like magnets. How do they even work? So Augustine says, your point is dumb. Of course God can make a body last forever, even while it's being tormented. And that gets into the next part of the discussion. What is the nature of this punishment? Well, it's real material fire. It's not some sort of... uh, That's not a metaphor. That's not symbolic. It's real fire that will be burning real physical material bodies. And it'll last forever, of course. But there's always the question, and it's a question that we ask ourselves today Does the punishment fit the crime? How can God burn someone for all eternity just for the sins that they commit in this brief life? And Augustine has an answer to that. And whether you like it or not, and I'm not particularly one who likes it, but it makes a certain amount of sense. Augustine says, first of all, we don't, even in this life, we don't punish people according to, you know, the time it took for them to commit the crime. I mean, it may take someone a split second to stab someone to death, and we don't just punish them for a split second so even our punishments on Earth here, we imprison someone or for life or put them to death for killing another person. So that punishment, obviously, uh, we're okay with that. Far exceeding, you know, the time span it took to commit that injustice. But more to the point, hell is not punishment simply for you know killing another person or lying the eternity of the punishment is in proportion to the eternity of the wrong that we have done to ourselves and to God and to the rest of humanity. Um, Augustine says, The reason why eternal punishment appears harsh and unjust to human sensibilities is that in this feeble condition of those sensibilities, under the condition of mortality— Man lacks the sensibility of the highest and purest wisdom, the sense which should enable him to feel the gravity of the wickedness and the first act of disobedience. So in other words, our own mortality, our, the briefness of our life spent here, keeps us from being able to see really the impact of our sin. We see life in this brief span of time, and and. If we were to see it from God's perspective, it would make sense. Now, that seems like a cop-out, but there is more to it. Augustine says that uh, the more intimate the first man, that is, Adam, the more intimate his enjoyment of God, the greater his impiety in abandoning God. By doing so, he merited eternal evil, and that he destroyed in himself a good that might have been eternal. So our sin separates us from God and that is depriving us and depriving God of an eternal good and perfect relationship. So we're not just being punished for, you know, the little thing we did that only took a brief amount of time in our tiny, you know, vapor of a life. The eternal punishment is in direct proportion to the eternal good that we could have had if we hadn't sinned in the first place. So, Augustine says that the punishment does fit the crime. It's exactly proportional to the crime. Another point that Augustine makes in this, sec- in this section is that um, hell, or this punishment, is not for purification. That's important to combat the ideas of people like uh, Origen, and others in the ancient world and ancient Christians who were uh, universalists who believed that ultimately everyone who's in hell, including Satan and the demons, everything will be reconciled to God. That once all of the uh, sin has been burned off and purged from those who have been condemned, then they will repent and will, will follow God and see the light. And Augustine says that's not what's happening here, it is actually eternal, it's not going to end, they're not going to repent. There's no purification to these fires of hell. Which that gets into the next thing that Augustine discusses, which is that hell is not temporary. Uh, Not only is it not about purifying, but it's also not just a temporary thing that eventually people will cease to exist. And he sees the reason why we would want to believe this, which is compassion. We ourselves don't want to see even horrible people suffer that way, and we believe that God wouldn't want to see that either. And he says, I'm aware that now I have to engage in a debate with those compassionate Christians who refuse to believe that the punishment of hell will be everlasting. They hold that they are to be set free after fixed limits of time have passed the periods being longer or shorter in proportion to the magnitude of their offenses. So, if you did worse crimes, you'll be in hell for longer than people who did lesser crimes. On this subject, the most compassionate of all was Origen, who believed that the devil himself and his angels will be rescued from their torments and brought into the company of the holy angels. But, he goes on, The church has rejected Origen's teachings, and that's true, technically, Origen's teachings were uh, eventually condemned by the church. The the point that Augustine goes on to make is that compassion alone is not a foundation for our doctrine. He says, uh, you know, talking about this idea that people will eventually uh, uh, cease to be punished in hell because that's mean... He says, now if this opinion is good and true just because it's compassionate, then it will be the better and truer, the more compassionate it is. Then let the fountain of compassion be deepened and enlarged until it extends as far as the evil angels who must be set free. So basically, Augustine says, we have God's word on the matter. The punishment is eternal and physical and we can't let our ideas of what is merciful or compassionate override the the doctrine that we've been given from you know, Christ and the apostles and the scriptures. Now, we can disagree with Augustine's reading of Christ and the apostles and the scriptures, but I agree with him that compassion alone isn't itself enough foundation for our doctrine. And I think that's probably a lesson that we need to learn Today, especially in like progressive aisle of Christianity, basically all of our doctrine in those circles tends to to revolve around whatever we view at the time as most compassionate. And so we get this whole idea of, you know, the right side of history um, or, you know, follow your own truth, be true to yourself, be who you are, this whole idea of, you know, compassion to yourself and to others to the extent that there's really no challenge to the way other people live their life. So I think Augustine, even if we reject his ideas of what hell is and, and how it works, I think he's still giving us something that we need to listen to here. Now Augustine does uh, go on to address the arguments that people have against his reading of scripture, they, he brings up the fact that people say, well, doesn't God want to reconcile all things to God's self? Uh, he says that they quote a passage from the Psalms, which says, will God really forget to be merciful? Will he in his wrath restrain his compassion? And the obvious answer that the psalmist wants us to say is, no, God will not forget to be merciful. God will not restrain his compassion God will pour out his compassion. He also points out that they uh, quote the Apostle Paul, who says, God has confined all men in unbelief so that he may have compassion on all. And Augustine doesn't really have a good response to this, I don't think. He just kind of accuses them of being inconsistent, because most of these people who argue this only apply this idea of God's compassion to humans, and they don't extend it to Satan and the demons, and so they're more compassionate than God toward humans, and that's kind of the end of it. Um, Maybe I'm missing something, but he doesn't really seem to have a good response to this. He goes on to talk about uh, the idea that um, heretics will not escape the punishment, nor will confessed Christians who continue to live in sin. And so he's kind of talking about two sides of the same coin here, that both orthodoxy and orthopraxy are required for uh, salvation. So uh, you can't be a heretic and live rightly, nor can you believe the right things and then live wrongly and still inherit the kingdom of God. So these are, are two, two aspects of our life that are... And I think we've seen this throughout the whole book. Augustine's whole kind of point in this is that these two things are required for us to live virtuously. There's these two commingled aspects of our life. The intellectual and the moral aspects of our life can't be divorced from one another. So that ends our discussion of book 21, let's move on to the happier book 22, where he discusses the felicity of paradise, the happiness and eternal bliss. Remember in our, in the very beginning of the book, we talked about this idea of happiness, of, it's not just this state of like mental relaxation or joy. It's, it's bigger than that. It's, it's a life lived well a virtuous life and so this and so the end reward of those who have been blessed by god with eternal life is is this perpetual state of bliss of perfect belief perfect knowledge perfect moral action and all of that makes us eternally happy and blessed but before we get to that he needs to explain kind of how sin works so that we can understand how and who gets into this state of eternal bliss. And he has this great, clear explanation of how he understands uh, sin, and he says sin is a defect. It's like blindness. Blindness is a defect of the eyes, which prevents you from being able to do what your eyes were naturally supposed to be able to do, which is to see, obviously. That's what sin is for us. Our bodies and our minds are naturally supposed to be able to live in this eternal state of bliss. We're supposed to be able to live rightly, to know fully, to be in the presence of God. But sin has, as a defection, as an illness, has limited us from being able to live as our bodies are naturally supposed to do. So he says sin actually proves the goodness of creation, because it, it shows what what was supposed to happen. We know something is wrong, therefore we know things are supposed to be a certain way, and that's proof of, of the goodness in our humanity. And the problem, and he starts with the angels, he did that in the beginning of of the whole book, too. He, he starts with angels and then kind of moves on to humanity and how sin affects uh, our natures, because that's chronologically how things happen. But he talks about how the problem with the angels is that they abandoned this blessedness when they had this desire to be self-sufficient for their own felicity or their, their own blessedness, their own happiness. I think that's a really profound thought that the problem stems from the angels and our own desire to be self-sufficient for our own happiness. And we've talked about this in our series through City of God before, but I, I can't help but come back to this. And I think Augustine is right that he would absolutely reject our, you know, contemporary idea of like find your own truth. And be true to yourself and, you know, whatever is in you is good and true and you ought to live out, you know, whatever is in your heart. I I think that that is exactly what Augustine says caused us to get into this mess in the first place, was looking inward for this ability to be happy. So this blessedness has to come from somewhere, and that somewhere is God. So how will it happen? What What is this e- eternal state of blessedness? First of all, it's resurrection. The physical resurrection of our bodies. And just like with the question that he was asked before, where he said, of course, physical bodies can endure eternal punishment, he has to once again prove that Our bodies can be resurrected from the dead and enjoy eternal blessedness. Again, Augustine basically says God is omnipotent. God can do whatever God wants. If God wants to raise our bodies, God, God can do it. And God said he'll do it, so he will. And again, there are those Platonists who think that our bodies will not exist in the state of blessedness, that the bodies are a corruption and that eventually we need to escape them and get to heaven. He says, that's not true. That's dumb. Of course, we'll have our physical bodies. He even talks about the fact that the very matter, the cells and atoms that make up our body, will be restored and be resurrected to the same bodies we have now. And this is something Gerhard and I have talked about on another episode. I can't remember which one. And we talked about you know if if i die and my body is you know left in some field and it decomposes and you know the the material that makes up my body is f- used to fertilize the grass that grows and so now parts components of my body are in this grass and then a cow walks by and eats that grass and now part of my body is in this cow which helps the cow grow and now part of my body is part of a cow's body. What happens during the resurrection? Is part of my body extracted from that cow and then, you know, glued back together to construct me? Or what about a body that's burned? Augustine says, yeah, it's gonna all come back together, those parts. He says, as for bodies that have been consumed by wild beasts or by fire, or those parts that have disintegrated into dust and ashes, or those parts that have been dissolved into moisture, or have evaporated into the air. It is unthinkable that the Creator should lack the power to revive all of them and restore them to life. So, Augustine says we have to have faith in the power of God to make these things happen. Okay, so we'll get our bodies, but what if our bodies are old and decrepit? What if they are deformed? What if we have disabilities will we go to heaven with those disabilities and, and malnourishment or deficits Augustine says we're going to be in in our best shape our deformities will no longer be there our deficiencies will no longer be there. If we die really old we'll come back we will we will be resurrected to the prime of our life. He even talks about babies that are aborted. Which, for one thing, I think that it's important to see that Augustine very much sees aborted babies as humans, as babies with souls, and he says that they will be resurrected not to their state as a fetus, but to what would become their full, healthy bodies. Now, moving on, it may seem weird that Augustine goes into this next section that we're going to talk about. Because we're talking about, you know, the, the goodness of of heaven, of paradise, of how great everything's going to be, this eternal blessedness, and then in the middle of it, Augustine has to talk, start talking about depravity and how utterly messed up we are, but it serves a good purpose. So Augustine says, as for that first origin of mankind, this present life of ours, if a state full of so much grievous misery, can be called a life, is evidence that all the mortal descendants of the first man came under condemnation. Such is the clear evidence of that terrifying abyss of ignorance, as it may be called, which is the source of all error, in whose gloomy depths all the sons of Adam are engulfed, so that man cannot be rescued from it without toil, sorrow, and fear. What else is the message of all evils of humanity? The love of futile and harmful satisfactions with its results, anxieties, agitations, disappointments, fears, quarrels, disputes, wars, all of these evils belong to man and his wickedness. And they all spring from that root of error and perverted affection which every son of Adam brings with him at his birth. And he goes on, To say that if man were left to live as he chose, and act as he pleased, he would fall into all, or most, of those crimes and sins which I mentioned, and others which I was not able to mention. So this is total depravity. He's not saying that everyone commits every single sin, or that there's absolutely no possibility of ever doing anything good. He's saying that left to our own devices, that if we just lived the way that we want to live, we would continue to fall into these debasing acts. But, he goes on, God doesn't abandon us altogether in our condemnation. God has given all people grace to live in this life. Existence itself is a gift from God. Augustine says from this life of misery a kind of hell on earth there's no liberation save through the grace of Christ our savior our god and our lord so all of the the good things that we receive all of the even the punishments that we receive that are for our benefit for the purpose of of calling us back to god of leading us to repentance these things are evidence that god hasn't left us alone But if we want to escape the toil, if we want to escape this hell on earth, the only liberation we have is through Christ. So God is good to the just and to the unjust. He gives us all existence and gives us all uh, the ability to continue to live in this world. But he's given us even more than that. And there are two specific things that Augustine wants to talk about propagation and conformation. So these are two gifts that God has given us that are particularly noteworthy to Augustine. God has given us the ability to make more people, to propagate, to to spread humanity, to, to have kids. So even into this nature corrupted by sin and condemned to punishment, even through that, God still wants more people, wants to give more people grace and possibility and future. But with that is the second and necessary gift, which is conformation. That is the ability to conform to what our nature is supposed to be. Augustine talks about how we, we grow up, how we come into this world completely ignorant, and then through time, as we grow and learn, we begin to understand more what the world is like and what we need as humans and the ability to, to learn truth and to love truth and to love the good. And he says, this capacity enables the mind to absorb wisdom, to acquire the virtues of prudence, fortitude, temperance, and justice, to equip man for the struggle against error and all the evil propensities inherent in man's nature, so that he may overcome them because his heart is set on only that supreme and unchanging good. Man may indeed fail in this, yet even so, what a great and marvelous good is this capacity for such good, a capacity divinely implanted in a rational nature. So those two gifts, propagation and confirmation, the ability to make more humans, and then the ability as a human to become more good, these are proof of God's blessing and goodness and love for humanity. And it's interesting, we see again these two cities that Augustine talks about in the seed, in in the uh, embryo, if we want to say that, of the human being. Embedded in that matter that our parents brought together to make us in our mother's womb is this part of us that is deeply human and deeply flawed, but also a part of us that is deeply loved by God and full of God's grace and capacity for goodness. So in every single human being, Augustine sees two cities commingled, part of our brokenness and part of God's goodness. And within that, there's this constant war going on as to whether we, whether we will choose the good or choose the brokenness, whether we will find our happiness in God, whether we will find our happiness in ourselves. And so Augustine says, even if there is no heaven, even if there is no reward at the end of this, we should want to do the good because it's the way to live this life best. As Augustine goes on finishing this last book, he spars with some more philosophers, gets into some stuff that I don't feel like talking about right now, but he does, does get into something important, something that is relevant, that we still debate today, and that is free will. Now we talked about this at the beginning of this of book 22, this idea of sin being uh, proof that our nature is originally good about how sin is a deformity, how it's uh, a defect. Now he comes back to this question again of sin and free will and our ability to do good, and he says that we won't have that deformity anymore. We're not going to have the ability to do wrong. So free will to Augustine isn't about having the choice between doing the wrong thing and doing the right thing. He says, The fact that they, that is, the blessed, the people who are in heaven and paradise, the fact that they will be unable to delight in sin does not entail that they have no free will. In fact, they will be the freer in that it is freed from a delight to sin, and immovably fixed in a delight in not sinning. The first freedom of will given to man when he was created upright at the beginning, was an ability not to sin, combined with the possibility of sinning. But this last freedom will be more potent, for it will bring the impossibility of sinning. Yet this also will be the result of God's gift, not of some inherent quality to nature. For to be a partaker of God is not the same thing as to be God. The inability to sin belongs to God's nature, While he who partakes of God's nature receives the impossibility of sinning as a gift of God. So we will have a free will, and yet we will be incapable of sinning because God has given us the gift of removing the possibility of sin. He goes on to say that in heaven we will be able to remember our past misery on earth but that it won't bring us misery. It, that is, so we'll be able to sing of the mercies of God in paradise. So we'll, we'll remember the fact that we were miserable, but that remembrance won't make us miserable. And there's an, a final quote that I want to give you right at the end of the book, as he's finishing this massive, massive work. So Augustine finishes this book talking about seven epics of history, how there are are these seven different ages of humanity, and they correspond to the seven days of creation. And the seventh day is the Sabbath. That is, we're living in the sixth day. But in the seventh, when we are ushered into paradise, when God is reigning and sin and death are no more, he says, the important thing is that the seventh will be our Sabbath whose end will not be an evening, but the Lord's day, an eighth day, as it were, which is to last forever, a day consecrated by the resurrection of Christ, foreshadowing the eternal rest, not only of the Spirit, but of the body also. There we shall be still and see, we shall see and we shall love, we shall love and we shall praise, behold what will be in the end without end, for what is our end? but to reach that kingdom which has no end. And thus we end our guide to St. Augustine's City of God.